Good morning. Today's passage comes from the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. What we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, good morning. Here we are in a new year, huh? Exciting. Don't judge a book by its cover. Wise old advice, right? What's inside the heart, what's inside a person is far more important than what's outside. What's inside is what God looks at, we're told. But, as God told Samuel, man tends to look at the outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. How true that is, isn't it? I mean, in our world, image seems to be everything. What's on the outside is what we focus on, it seems. A recent study of Harvard Business School, the most influential business school in all the land, many presidents, CEOs, etc., come out of Harvard Business School. They are teaching these days that how you present yourself is what's most important in your leadership. Those who are aggressive, verbal, confident, outgoing, those are the ones that are the best leaders, and so that's what they're training up, not so much what you know or the content or your character, but it's how you present yourself. Even though studies have shown that often quiet, withdrawn people make the best leaders. Think of a Bill Gates, for example. (laughs) But the truth is, All of us tend to judge people by the cover, by what's outside. We evaluate one another, don't we, by looks, by smarts, by clothes, by demeanor. Are they happy or frowning? We make judgments about people, about their money, how much they make, their position, their education, their political affiliation speaking ability, their weight, etc. One of 
the most uh, interesting events of the last few years, I think, was in 2009 when Susan Boyle rumbled across the stage in the British version of American Idol, a middle-aged, pudgy, awkward woman who began to sing. She sang, I Dreamed a Dream from Les Miserables, and everyone was held spellbound by that. It was easy to judge her by outward appearance, but she has since become an international singing sensation. It's a reminder that we should not judge a book by its cover. Well, it's bad when it happens out in the world, but I think it's worse when it happens amongst us. When we judge one another by outward appearance, it creates division, criticalness. It does harm. You see, when we've been gripped by the new covenant, this, this new life we've been talking about in Second Corinthians, that Christ is in us, that we've been made new creations, as our passage today talks about, that everything is different. It means we can look at each, each other differently. We can see people from God's perspective. The Corinthians and others have been judging Paul by outward appearance. He's been criticized for it. According to tradition, Paul was short, balding, unattractive, not a very dynamic speaker. I can relate. (laughs) But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, our passage today, he lays out how we can look at others differently, how, how we can begin to look at the heart. And when we look at the heart... We see something totally different. So today, as we look at the heart of new covenant believers, we can begin to relate to one another in a new and fresh and exciting way. Pray with me, if you would. Lord, we confess that we are like the world around us. We judge one another by outward appearance too often. We write people off because of certain outward things, and yet we miss what's in the heart. Lord, as we look at this passage, as we hear the cry of Paul's heart for us to look at the heart, to pay attention to what's inside, not on on the outside, may our vision be changed. May our view of one another be changed, and even our view of ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things that's to change is that we are to have new motivations. Our motivations should be different. You see, when we talk about the heart of a person, what's inside, we need to consider always their motivations. What what drives a person? What moves them? What causes them to do what they do? It's a good question for each of us here this morning. What really motivates you? What drives you in life? What causes you to make the choices that you do? How you spend your money? Who you spend time with? How, how you live your life? What, what motivates you in your life? Some of our common motivations are, if we're living in the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant, remember, which says, you better measure up or you'll be judged then our motivation tends to be one of fear, fear of judgment. I'd better toe the line or else. If I don't obey God, I'll be cursed. 
But there's many other motivations that drive us, I think, in this world. Many of us are people pleasers. That's certainly one of the motivations I've struggled with. We're often motivated by social pressure. We don't want to look like fools. We want to be acceptable to others around us. We want to be thought highly of. Many of us are motivated by a fear of failure, a fear of rejection, or even a fear of death. Or simply, you could put it this way, most people are motivated by the desire to find comfort or to avoid pain. (laughs) Doesn't that control a lot of what we do? To find comfort or to avoid pain. But see, Paul is so excited about this new covenant, this new arrangement with God that that He comes to dwell inside us. He's taking care of our sin. We have new life in Him and He becomes our life. So it becomes everything from Him, nothing from me. I can depend on His life in me. That new covenant we've been talking about, he's so excited about it. He said that gives us a whole new motivation in our life. He actually mentions two things that motivates a new covenant believer. Fear and love. But it's not the kind of fear we normally think about. Notice verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Clearly, Paul's not talking about a fear of judgment here that motivates him. But he says, because I know the fear of the Lord, I persuade others. I am motivated to serve him. What kind of fear is he talking about? Well, this kind of fear is is a kind of reverence. I think it can be summarized this way. Knowing that God has your life and your future in his hands. That's a reverence. That's a fear that says, I know that my life and my future are in his hands. Now, see, that could be either cause for great celebration not a fear of judgment, but great celebration, or a cause of real terror if you don't trust God or believe He's out for your good. It's like a boss who you know that could fire you any minute. He's got your job in his hands. Well, again, that could be a good thing or a bad thing. If he likes you, he's on your side, he's supportive of you, he really likes your work, then that doesn't scare you. You fear him in the sense you know he has the power, but you're not afraid of him. But if he's not a good boss and he's out to get you and you feel that he is displeased with you, then that's cause for great discomfort. (laughs) Our lives are in God's hands. That's really how he ended this section before and what he's referring to, verse 10. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Our lives and our future are in his hands, Paul says, but that causes me great security and confidence, and that motivates me, Paul says. But the bigger motivation is what he goes on to say in this passage in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that he, one has died for all, therefore all have died. My life is in his hands. But what really controls me is not that reverence as much as knowing that he died for me. 
that He loved me in my fallenness, in my sinfulness, in my brokenness, He was willing to go to the cross for me. And because He was willing to die for me and shown His love for me, then that drives me to want to serve Him. That controls my life. That is my motivation for life. Oh, if you and I could just be gripped by the love of God to that extent. Could know how much He loves you right now, today. If you could just be gripped by that and understand how much it took for Him to give up His life for you. But He did it because He wanted to free you and give you life forever. This boss who has our life in His hands said, let me give up my life for you so you need never fear again. My love for you is eternal. And my love for others is great. So Paul says, I have no fear of judgment. I've begun to grasp the love of God and it controls what I do. In verse 13, it's interesting. It says, if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. But if we are in our right mind, it's for you. Paul's so enamored by the love of God and controlled by the love of God that the world around him thinks he's crazy. (laughs) Paul, you're out of your mind. Remember Felix said that when Paul was sharing the love of Christ with him when he was on trial? Paul, your great learning has driven you mad, he says. And here Paul says, if I'm being accused of being crazy, it's for God. It's because His love controls me, so I don't respond like the world around me. And you think about it, Paul acted pretty crazy. If the love of God wasn't real, how in the world could he keep going back to places where he'd been kicked out of town and sharing Christ, and in Lystra where he was stoned and then drug out of the city and left for dead? You know what he did? He got up and walked right back into the city and shared the love of Christ. Paul, are you nuts? Yeah. Yeah, I've been overtaken by the love of Christ in such a way that I'm crazy. I'm crazy about him. And he's crazy about me. (laughs) Oh, if we could be grasped by the love of God in that way, imagine what that would do to our lives. And that's exactly what God is moving us towards as new covenant believers so that we'd be overwhelmed and controlled by the love of Christ. And so... Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Death doesn't scare me, but while I'm alive, I want to live for Christ. You may struggle with God's love. We we all do to some extent. I, I get that. Life's hard and we think, God, if you really love me, you wouldn't make my life so hard. I wouldn't struggle so much. There's times it's hard not to question God's love because of our, our limited, finite view of what love really looks like. But what Paul says here is he says, what proves to me God's love and what controls my life and makes me crazy for God is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because if He would take on my sin and die for me, if He would do that, then I know that He loves me and I need never fear He would cast me away and I know He's out for my good. Even when life seems hard, He's got a greater purpose that's for my good and that constrains Him. So if you ever doubt the love of God, 
Think about the cross. Meditate on the cross. Let the cross go deeply into your heart because that is the key to resting in God's love. When you feel like God couldn't love me because I'm such a sinner, well, what does the cross do? It takes away the sin that divides us. Cling to the cross. Know the cross. Focus on the cross. Meditate on the cross because that is where you will find your rest in the love of God. Notice what he says in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. One died for all. Therefore all have died. And he died for all that they who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who died for their sake and was raised. There's some interesting things here that need some explanation, I think, where he says, one died for all, therefore all have died. What does he mean by that? Well, there are some theologies out there that say Jesus only died for the elect, for those whom God has chosen to be saved. God didn't die for anybody else, just for the elect. Well, frankly, I don't see that in Scripture. And I certainly don't see it in this passage. It says he died for all. And in the context, all means everybody. Jesus died for everybody. That means you can go up to the person at the grocery counter or you can go to your teller at the bank or your neighbor or your, your relative or whoever it might be, your friend, and you can say Jesus died for you. He gave up his life for you. He died for all. And then he says something really interesting. Therefore, all died. How is that true? Well, I think every human being, when Adam sinned, we were united with Adam's sin and we all received that sin that was passed on to us, huh? That's true of all of us. But when Jesus died on the cross, his blood, his death covered everybody. The old, trapped in sin, no way out person died. Now every human being has a choice because the blood of Christ covers them. Therefore, in that sense, all died. There's now a choice. The old person's dead. Now they have a choice to choose Christ or not, to come alive or not. It's still their choice. But we all have salvation offered to us. The only question is, will we receive it? You see what good news this is? It means that Jesus died for every person on earth. Muslim, American, young, old, hardened criminal, politician, lawyer, politician, (laughs) pastor, politician. (laughs) Yes, Even for all those, Jesus died. The blood of Christ covers everyone. And so our message is not, you better get your act together so that you can deal with your sin. No, your message is, your sin has been taken care of, so now be reconciled to God. Just come home. Just come home. So Paul says, my motivation under this new covenant is, Partly fear because I respect him and and my life is in his hands. But more than that, it's the love of Christ. It's the cross. It's what Jesus has done for me. And that, that controls my life. That constrains me. 
That's what I live for. And that's the motivation that each one of us, God wants to build into us, to know the love of Christ, Paul says, in such a way, the height and width and length of it, he prays for the Ephesians, so that you would know that love that transforms us and changes us. Not only the heart of a new covenant believer takes on new motivations, but we begin to see people differently. We have a new view of others, and that's the next couple of verses. Verse 16, Paul writes, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. As we've said, we tend to judge people by outward appearance. But under the New Covenant, Paul says, we don't regard people by outward appearance, by the flesh, any longer. And he uses this example of Jesus. Now think about how Paul viewed Jesus. Paul and many others saw Jesus as what? As basically a nobody from Galilee. In fact, a liar, a false prophet, a troublemaking carpenter from the podunk little town of Nazareth who got killed and now his irritating followers are stirring up this mess. That's essentially how Paul saw him. But he says, we don't see Christ that way any longer. That's the old way. We see him as Lord and Savior, Redeemer, the one who shared the love of God with us so profoundly. So Paul says, now we see everyone differently. Everyone differently. There's, there's a scene in The Hobbit, maybe you've seen it, where, where Bilbo is, they're in the forest, he and his dwarf companions, and they're trapped in this forest and they're trying to figure out where they're going and they're lost, they've gotten off the trail, they're confused, and he says, well, let me climb a tree. Bilbo climbs to the top of the tree and he says, oh, there's a lake, I see We're almost out of the forest. I know where we are. You see, when you understand the new covenant and what God's done for every person on earth, it it changes your view of other people. You have a fresh view. You no longer judge people by outward appearances, but, but as someone who can be reconciled to God. You begin to look at people not how they look outwardly and how they dress and what they drive, but are they in Christ or not? Do they know Him or not? The only thing that really matters is their spiritual life. Are they in relationship with God or not? Are they new in Him or not? And if not, Jesus died for them. They're potentially believers, and God is wooing them even right now. And so that's how I view every person, Paul says. I've looked at everybody differently. I have a fresh view of all people. I, I've told this story before, but it's, it's one of the most profound events in my life for understanding this whole concept of seeing people not so much by outward appearance. So when I was a college student, or excuse me, I was an intern in seminary, and I was working on Stanford's campus. And I was leading a Bible study in a row house. And, the, and these were kind of the roughest, most liberal, out there people, okay? And so I'm leading this study and I said, well, you know, we should probably 
pray that somebody comes to Christ. Let's, let's pray for one person and just pray that they would come to Jesus. And everybody said, well, let's, let's pray for Jeff. Yeah, let's pray for Jeff. Yeah, let's pray for Jeff. Yeah, let's pray for him. And I thought, now, wait a minute, who's Jeff? And then they realized who Jeff was. He was the row house party animal. He was the one who hated Christians and would argue with them at every step of the way. He, he was the one who was dancing on tables at meals because he'd been drinking and all kinds of craziness. And I thought, come on, can't we choose somebody a little closer to the kingdom? <laughs> you know, we're, we're just going to get discouraged and never pray for anybody again. <laughs> Six weeks later, he started coming to our study. Nine weeks later, he accepted Christ. God taught me a lesson through that. Never judge someone by outward appearance. I still need to learn that lesson, by the way. But, but it's so powerful when you see that God has died for everybody. Jesus died for everybody, and he longs for them to come to know him. So we can have a new view of people. Either they're in Christ or they need to come to Christ. And verse 17, he says, we look at believers differently too. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I know many of us sitting out there today, because I know, I've, I've felt this way. It's like, well, God tells me I'm a new creation, but I don't feel a whole lot different. I still struggle with a lot of the old stuff. I still live way too much for myself. I, I still am way too much about me. And the things I struggle with don't seem to be changing that much. Am I really, really a new creation? But what Paul's saying is true. The old has passed away, the new has come. That, that beautiful picture of a, of a caterpillar building a cocoon and then coming out of that cocoon. You and I are these butterflies that have broken out of the cocoon and what we look at and what we see is, is kind of the old, you know, the old bits of the cocoon that are hanging on us and the gunk that hasn't quite cleansed off us. And we look at that and we think, yeah, that's what I really am. I'm still a caterpillar. But God's trying to tell you and me this morning, no, you're a new creation. And we need to look at other people. If they're in Christ, they are a new creation. They have the life of God in them, the Holy Spirit. And that's what you appeal to. That's what you look to. That's what you recognize at work. Yeah, we struggle with some of the old stuff, but that's not really us, Paul says. That's just the hanging on of the old life that someday God's going to do away with completely and set us free from completely. And we can look forward to that with joy. So we look at others differently and we even look at ourselves differently. It's like when a friend, I've had a number of people do this, adopt a child from another country. Initially, they may see that child as, yeah, he's, you know, he's, Chinese or he's African or he's whatever, that's what he is and he's got these problems and that's... But once they adopt them into their family, all they really see 
is that they're family. <laughs> You're one of us. And when someone comes to Christ, they're family. They're one of us. And so we begin to see them that way. It doesn't matter all the outward stuff. And yeah, they still struggle. And sometimes they're irritating and whatever. But you know what? That's not what's important. What's important is they're a new creation in Christ and they have His life in them. So in the new covenant, we have the freedom to see people differently as they really are as new creations in Christ. Paul says, I used to judge people by all that outward stuff, even Jesus. But now I look at them differently. Where are they with Christ? Are they in Christ or do they just need to come to Him? And this frees us to fellowship with people of all kinds of backgrounds and denominations, nationalities, all kinds of looks, etc. when we see people this way because we have this connection in Christ. We're one family. We've all been adopted into the same family. And that's what's most important. We're under his love and his care. So a new covenant believer, someone who's been gripped by the fact that Jesus plants his life in us, wants to live his life through us and and died for us on the cross, then not only has new motivations and a new way of looking at people, but a new purpose in life. And that's these last few verses. What's our old purpose? What naturally is our purpose in life? What do we live for as human beings in a broken, fallen world ever since Adam and Eve sinned? Verse 15 makes it very clear. And he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We all naturally live for ourselves. That's our purpose. That's part of our fallen nature. We live for ourselves, to get for ourselves, to get what we feel like we need to have life go well or to avoid pain, but those things drive us. It's all about us. But he shows us what this new purpose is that God's given us in verses 18 and following. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul says, we have a new king. Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Redeemer. He died for us. And He has made us His ambassadors. We have a calling. God has entrusted to us this ministry of reconciliation. And note the progression. Paul says, as a new covenant believer, you begin to be overwhelmed and controlled by the fact that God loves you. You begin to see people differently. as Are they in Christ or not? And then you want to take that message of reconciliation to the world and say, I want to be used of you, God, to help people come to know you, to be reconciled to you. Their relationship with you is broken and they need to know you. You've covered their sin. Now they need to come to know you. And he uses this terminology, this picture of ambassador. Think about what an ambassador does. They're sent to a foreign country. They live in a consulate. 
or an embassy. And their job is to represent the president or the king of the country from which they came. To speak for him, to represent him or her. And see, that's what we are. We are ambassadors. We've been placed in a foreign land. We're strangers and aliens here. And we are here to speak for the king. Be reconciled to God. That's his message that we are to share with everyone. Be reconciled to God. He died for you. He loves you. Be reconciled to God. And he's entrusted that message to you and to me so we can share it with others. That's our new covenant purpose. See, the old covenant, if you're living under the old covenant, your, your purpose is, I better keep the rules or God's going to be mad at me. But in the new covenant, because of his love and his grace, our new purpose is, wow, he's loved me and he's poured his life out for me and I can't wait to share that with somebody else. I want them to be reconciled to God too because this is life. I have a friend, John Hanneman, who's now a pastor at Peninsula Bible Church, California, but he says this, seeing ourselves as ambassadors of Christ changes the way we live. As a young Christian, I moved to California and began my engineering career. At first, no one knew that I was a believer. I kept it secret. But eventually, I went public, and that changed everything. Each day I went to work knowing that I represented Christ. The story goes on with my friend John. He was at Ford Aerospace in California, and he kept being offered promotions, and he turned down several promotions. They thought he was crazy. (laughs) Why did he turn them down? Because he said, no, that would take time away from my family, from my chance to serve in my church. I don't want to be in that managerial position. I'm just willing to serve right where I am. And he continued doing that. And in that position, one time when they were having huge conflicts in their whole department there at Ford Aerospace and they couldn't work out the relationships, there were problems, the managers couldn't handle it. And so they came to John because they knew of his faithfulness and his integrity and his heart for Christ. And they said, will you help us work out this issue? And God used him there. Why? Because he was willing to let people know, I'm an ambassador for Christ. I'm here to serve him. That's our calling, folks. No matter where God's placed you, you are an ambassador for Christ. In the relationships you have today, you are an ambassador for Christ. And Paul ends with this incredible statement. I I just hope someday I can begin to plumb the depths of this statement where he says in verse 21, For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the basis of our entire message, brothers and sisters. Think about this. Meditate on this verse. Because what it says is not that Jesus, when he went to the cross, just took the consequences of sin. Well, my sin, I should have died, but Jesus took my place. He substituted himself for me. That is absolutely true, but that's not the whole picture. What it says in this verse is that he didn't just bear our punishment, he became the very sin 
that we are. So we could become the righteousness of God. He not only carried our sin, but he took it into his very being. He became infected with the sin virus that we all have. Now, in a mysterious way, because he was God, he never sinned, but he took on sin. He became sin, and God judged sin forever in him. So that we wouldn't just kind of put on righteousness, but that we might become the righteousness of God. That new butterfly where we we are actually living out righteousness, not perfectly, but his life is so in us and so part of us that we really are the righteousness of God, not just acting righteously. Do you realize how incredible the gospel is? How does all this work? I'm not sure. It's deeper than I can understand. But I know it means we're really new creations and our sin has been dealt with and God loves you and me right where we are. Even with the trappings, the old stuff hanging on us a little bit and we're still kind of falling into some old patterns. He is in us and loves us and has made us the very righteousness of God. So that's the heart of a new covenant believer. That's what God wants to do in our hearts, every one of us, as we come to Christ and put our faith in the cross. He he wants our motivations to change so we're motivated ultimately by love. His incredible love for us and for everybody. And that we begin to see people differently. We, we have eyes where we look beyond the superficial to really what's going on in their hearts. Do they know Him or not? And if they don't know Him, we have this purpose of wanting to plead with them to be reconciled to God as Paul does in this passage. Therefore, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And if you've never been reconciled to God this morning, I plead with you. God's love is so great. He died for you that you might have life. He longs for relationship with you. He removed all the barriers. Your sin is no longer an issue. It doesn't have to divide you from God. You don't have to get your act together before you come. That's been dealt with. Praise God. So will you come? Will you be reconciled to God? And if you're a struggling Christian, will you see yourself as a new creation, as who God has made you to be in the old stuff? It doesn't matter. It doesn't count. Just begin to walk as a new creation in Christ. Enjoy your life in Him. And especially enjoy the love of Christ, which can motivate you to live as a new covenant believer. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing passage. We've, we've barely even begun to plummet steps. But we've seen the depth of your love, how incredible it is. May it transform us. May we be gripped by the reality of your love for us in such a way that it might motivate us to live for you, no longer for ourselves. That it might change the way we view other people and that it might Give us a deep sense of purpose to call others to reconciliation with you. Thank you, Lord, for the great love that you've shown us in the cross, that you became sin, that we might become 
the very righteousness of God. All this is through Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who made it all possible. And so we praise you and give you thanks, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, now we have the privilege of witnessing a baptism as we watch someone who's given their lives to Christ and is enjoying that new life in Christ. And uh, Josh is going to lead us. My pleasure right now to introduce to you Randy Falwell and his daughter, Rachel, Rochelle Caston. I apologize, Rochelle. Um, uh, Rochelle has given her life to Christ and um, has asked that Randy baptize her. And that's a pleasure um, as a dad of daughters. I'd love to see that opportunity um, for Randy and for Rochelle. So I'm going to read Rochelle's testimony. She didn't feel comfortable uh, reading it to you, but um, it's my pleasure to do that. So this is Rochelle's words. I made the decision to be saved when I was quite young. In the church I was raised in, you were dedicated to God, not baptized by water. My family has always been very supportive and encouraging of my relationship with the Lord. One of my favorite memories is as a little girl, my father waking me up early so we could do a daily devotional together each day. As I grew older, I did not follow God's plan for me. However, in the last three years, the Lord has shown me what he can do if I let him. He has made a drunk sober. A mother trusts that God is in control, even though I sometimes forget, and that no matter how bad things are, he is here with us to comfort and strengthen us. And this has really been put to the test in our family's lives in the last couple of years. I wanted my dad to baptize me, not because I don't have many other supporters in my family, but because he is, and always has been, the first to ask me if I have prayed about any issue. I look forward to where life will take me, following God's plans instead of mine. So Randy and Rochelle. 